I'm going to name some famous people. And then you are going to give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down, depending on what kind of a person they were, depending on their legacy. Okay, ready? Albert Einstein. Mostly up, or maybe all up. Um, Princess Diana. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Bill Cosby. Up, up, down, 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 up. Okay. What does this mean? Good and bad. Some good and mixed. Yeah. Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. MLK, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. Lots of ups there. Muhammad Ali. Um, Adolf Hitler. Now I'm looking at this one carefully. I might have to have a pastoral moment. Okay, we're united on that one. Judas Iscariot. Up. Who is he? Up and down. Mm. Sideways. Down. Double down. Okay. You know, sometimes we call other people by these names. Have you ever told your, your child... Uh, what a little Einstein you are. Or you're such a princess. Of course, we tend to be thinking of the Disney princesses when we say this, but we tell our little girls, you're a princess. In politics, the name Hitler seems to be bandied about quite often. And, but have you ever been called a Judas? That is a powerfully negative name. We're in a sermon series entitled Jesus Through the Eyes of. We are looking at people who interacted with Jesus. What did they see? What did they think? How did Jesus impact them? And how was Jesus himself impacted by them? Today we come to one of his closest friends in the inner circle of 12 main disciples who traveled everywhere. Today we are looking at Judas, one of those disciples. Now, Last time I preached, I was mixing Mary and Martha up a lot, I guess. So help me out today, because Judas and Jesus have somewhat of the same syllables in them. So if I say something wrong, help me correct myself, okay? What was Judas known for? Betrayal. No, betrayal, well, he was, but... <laughs> He's known for being betray a, a betrayer, and that is how he is labeled in Scripture from the very beginning. In all of the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have a list of the 12 main disciples that Jesus called for himself. Last on every list is Judas Iscariot, and right after his name, they say, who betrayed Jesus. Judas Iscariot, who was a traitor. The person who has no knowledge of Jesus' story and starts reading it from the beginning uh, knows from the very beginning that nestled in this group of 12 closest companions, there is a snake. He isn't one yet, but he will become one. So how did Judas see Jesus? Well, Judas was first of all a disciple. One of you said that. He was attracted enough to Jesus' message to leave everything behind him, to follow Jesus. He gave his life 
to Jesus. It was a tremendous sacrifice to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, it always is. But one of those original 12 men had to leave behind their home, their, their social setting, their community, their way of making a living to pay their bills. They had to leave family behind. And it was an itinerant and homeless lifestyle of walking here, walking there, just constantly on the move. So we know that initially, when Jesus called Judas to himself, Judas decided that it was worth investing his life in Jesus. Then how did Judas, so close to Jesus, become a traitor? Not much is said specifically about Judas during the three years that the disciples spent walking with Jesus, but remember that Judas walked every step of that journey with Jesus and the others. Remember that he saw every single miracle. He heard every heart-stirring teaching. He saw how Jesus loved very inappropriate people. He saw how Jesus confronted the religious establishment. He saw how Jesus attracted multitudes to himself. In the synoptic, those three first gospels, um, Judas is mentioned with the 12 at the beginning, and then he's not mentioned until the last week of Jesus' life. But in the Gospel of John, which is a little different, there's one intriguing clue about him and uh, in John chapter 6. Now, this is a very difficult chapter and long chapter. It starts with the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Then in the night, Jesus has to walk on the water to, the, to his disciples who were in a boat in a storm. And then the next day, it's followed by an incredibly difficult teaching in which Jesus calls himself the bread of heaven. And then he declares, now listen with ears that haven't heard this before. He declares that only those who eat Jesus' flesh, his own flesh, and drink his own blood can have eternal life. Now imagine what you would think if your teacher started saying outlandish things like this, not knowing about the Lord's, all of that was still in the future, not knowing any of that. What kind of cannibalism is Jesus advocating? So we start in John chapter six, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, so this is not just the 12 primary group, but many disciples that Jesus had gathered to himself. When many of them heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I mean, if they could see that. Wow. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. Amen. The flesh, I'm just put that on my desk. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one who would betray him. Now in the synoptics, we've been told at the beginning, but this in John, this is the first we hear of one who's going to betray him. And Jesus said, for this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words to eternal life, of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though one of the 12, was going to betray him. Now why mention Judas twice in this passage? Is this where Judas started to turn? Was this teaching about Jesus' blood and flesh offensive to him? Maybe he thought at that point, well, I've invested so much, I can't, you know, I put so much in, I can't turn away now. Or did Judas have different plans for Jesus? Did he want Jesus to ride that wave of popularity and be crowned as king as a multitude wanted? Maybe Judas's uh, adrenaline was pumping, but then Jesus decreased his followers to a, a dozen. What kind of a backward social media campaign is he is he doing? The next time G Judas comes into focus is at the very end. The week before Jesus is put to death, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, gave a dinner for Jesus. And at that event, Mary, Lazarus' sister, anointed Jesus' feet with perfume, which cost about a year's worth of salary. We looked at this event a couple weeks ago. And then J John 12 tells us in verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him. Like, don't we know this already? Every single time his name is mentioned, it has that little reminder. One that was about to betray him, in case we've forgotten. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse. He was the treasurer of this group of disciples and used to steal what was put into it. We don't know when Judas started stealing from the common purse. We don't know if he came in as a thief or he became one or why. But to steal from Jesus, how low is that? People do that today in churches, you know. To steal from Jesus. Mm. It tells us something about Judas' heart. By the time Judas gets to the end of Jesus' ministry, it seems to have become a habit, this thieving. In Mark's account of this event, it's after Judas spoke up about the utter waste of that perfume that he immediately went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. He met with the religious authorities. He told them he had direct access to Jesus' itinerary, and he knew that they couldn't afford to arrest him publicly because the people still flocked to Jesus. They just had a huge parade for them. So the religious leaders had to arrest Jesus in secret, and Judas could deliver Jesus to them. They agreed on a sum of money. How much is in that little pouch of money? Do you know? 30 pieces of silver. And so now it's not just thoughts. Now it's a concrete plan. Maybe it was about the money. Maybe it was also the distasteful spectacle of a woman pouring perfume on Jesus' feet and wiping it with her hair 
that that was it for Judas. Maybe that just like that's it. Or maybe he saw the worship. I wonder whether he even did see that as worship. He either didn't see that as worship or he saw that as worship and thought it was misplaced. Worship that should go to the one and only God instead. I don't know. But that event seems to be the catalyst that drove him into action. So then a week later, Judas arrives at the Last Supper. Judas is the one at the Last Supper here in this painting who is without a halo. See if you can find him. And the brightest halo, halo belongs, of course, to Jesus. So he arrives at the Last Supper. All four Gospels describe that emotionally heavy meal. And to this point, Judas has conspired, but he hasn't delivered on his betrayal. All four Gospels record Jesus' warning as they are sitting together at the table. Luke 22, verse 21. But see the one who betrays me is with me, his hand is on the table. I'd go like this. I know my hand would be on the table, I'd go like this, right? To this point, Jesus, Judas had, had been thinking, preparing, planning for it, but now when Jesus says this, and then he says, for the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to the one by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to ask one another, which one of them could it be who would do this? So apparently, all of them thought, maybe I'm capable. And apparently, Judas had been flying under the radar so that they didn't all, all of them always say, is it Judas? But you're talking about Judas. That didn't occur. They were like, is it me? Okay. So John and Luke record that immediately after this, Satan entered Judas. That's how they put it. Judas leaves the room, and now the plan is put into motion. And the next time he appears, it's in the dark, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where again, all four Gospels describe Judas' betrayal of his teacher, his savior, with a kiss. This is a very famous painting by Carpaggio and look at the darkness and light in this picture and look at the look at the conflict look at the uh, action of arresting and the disciples response and Judas kissing Jesus the authorities needed a dark and quiet place and so Judas said I'm going to kiss him so that you will know who to arrest in that gloom and darkness you won't be uh, confused and Jesus was arrested in the morning, Matthew 27 tells us, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Have you ever done something that you immediately regretted? This is a pretty big something, pretty big, terrible mistake. Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Did Judas remember that when he was hatching this plan, he thought he was in charge? He probably bargained the money with them, drove it up. But now he knows that he was used. And now the priests have no more use for him. And he is nothing to them. 
Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Judas appeared to love money so much, but the 30 pieces of silver burned his hand when he took them. He never got to enjoy the money. He didn't spend it. He didn't keep it. He'd done something awful for it, but the money lost its allure when he had a grasp on it. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since they are blood money. Now, what are they saying about themselves, calling this dirty money? We can't put it into the holy temple treasury. It's blood money. After conferring together, they used them to buy the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners, and then it was called the field of blood. The Bible is not interested in the questions, in answering the questions, how did Judas become a traitor? What motivated him? Why did he do it? So, of course, this has not stopped people from speculating on his motivation. The Gnostic Gospel of Judas portrays Judas' actions as done in obedience to secret instruction from Jesus himself. Jesus knew he had to die, so he instructed Judas to betray him to set the wheels in motion. So Judas is not really a betrayer. He's a loyal disciple following Jesus' order. Well, this turning of history on its head has been soundly rejected as heretical. Another idea is that Judas thought he could get the money for betraying Jesus without Jesus being killed because he had seen Judas get away from mobs before because it wasn't his time. So he's like, I'm going to get me this money, and then Judas is going to walk away, and I will... Thank you. Jesus is going to walk away, and I'm going to hold, hold on to this money. Thank you, thank you. I knew I was going to do that. Some think that Judas expected Jesus to overthrow Roman rule as king, like the crowd in John chapter 6. And when he did it, Judas was disillusioned, and his betrayal wasn't for love of money, but for love of country. And then Judas has also been depicted as wanting to force Jesus' hand to, to declare his divinity and establish the kingdom on earth. And he was impatient for this to happen, so he conspired to have him arrested and expected all the angels to come down to rescue him, and then people would know who Jesus was. So those are all reasons people have talked about. Why he did it is not that important. The biblical account is very clear that in, in spite of Satan entering him, that Judas bore the personal responsibility of betraying Jesus and that that crushing sin sent him, drove him to suicide. There are two kingdoms, opposite and opposing, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And Judas chose darkness. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And Judas chose this world. In the end, Judas was drawn more to evil than to God. And this is puzzling because Judas should have been able to tell the difference and make a right choice. But then again, a lot of people heard Jesus during his ministry here on earth and didn't take his words into their heart. A whole lot of people saw Jesus perform a miracle. Judas saw all of them. And it's a reminder to us that those 
Flashy signs and miracles alone are not adequate for sustaining faith. Jesus chose Judas, but Judas still had to choose Jesus back. And throughout this bitter betrayal, look at Jesus who practiced what he preached. Don't all preachers practice what we preach? Look at Jesus. Not at the preachers, look at Jesus. His way of nonviolence, his way of non-retaliation, his love of enemies to the very end. Maybe Judas wanted more force. What did Judas see when he looked at Jesus in the end? He wasn't looking through eyes of love. He wasn't looking through eyes of admiration. Something in their relationship had ruptured. This is a time in our society where many people are turning away from the church. And mind you, I am not saying that turning away from the church equals turning away from Jesus. Not at all. But sometimes when people turn away, they may be turning away from Jesus. What's going on when followers turn away from Jesus? On the one hand, Jesus is wonderful. Isn't he? Isn't that our witness? Our experience of him? But there is another hand. On the other hand, Jesus doesn't always act the way I expect him to. On the other hand, Jesus doesn't always answer my prayers the way I'd like him to. On the other hand, Jesus sometimes delays until my patience runs out. On the other hand, have you ever been disappointed by Jesus? Not everyone has, but it's an honest wrestling of faith that comes to many of his followers. So what's going on when followers don't follow? What drives our disappointment with Jesus? Impatience? Okay. Lack of trust? Disappointment? But what drives the disappointment? Selfishness, lack of control, yep, anger, mm -hmm. immaturity, mm -hmm. yeah, not knowing what God is doing, kind of being in the dark about what God is doing, not knowing what God is doing. You guys should have preached this sermon. Okay, selfishness, yeah, we got that. I came up with my list. Your list is fantastic, it's excellent. But my list includes, uh, and I was surprised you didn't say this up off the top of your head, what drives our disappointment with Jesus? His people, who can be so unpleasant. What? Not Robert, and everybody but Robert. So hypocritical sometimes, we'll call them the church. We don't know anything about Judas's relationship with the fellow disciples, but we know that Jesus 
called 12 very different men. One was a tax collector, a collaborator with the Romans. Right there, we know there was trouble. One was a zealot who fought against Rome. Uh, one was, well, two were called Sons of Thunder. And you know, if your name is Son of Thunder, you know there were sparks there. It had to be a little lightning, too. And you know, a thief, a thief puts a lot of pressure on a group. When disciples behave poorly, and just insert all the headlines over the past few years of Christians being ugly and hateful, insert headlines of pastors who have fallen from in sin. When disciples behave poorly, it turns people away from Jesus. Another thing I thought about is deep suffering drives our disappointment with Jesus. Many of you referred to that. We don't understand why Jesus allows us to keep on suffering when we know he could just stop it. And, uh, and when we don't want to be in this place of pain anymore. Suffering beats your spirit down, doesn't it? It just gets hard. So on that path of suffering, we come to a fork in the road. Joyce referred to this. That we can turn to God even though we don't understand his signs, or we can turn to anger and bitterness. And that fork we meet many times. I thought about when life is unfair. Don't you know a person for, who just has a lot on their plate, like too much? They're really going through a lot. And then some random thing happens to them that, is, that did not need to happen that's over the top. It's unfair for them to have to go through this when other people's lives are fairly good. And that causes questions about what God is up to, and anger bubbles up there. Another thing I called was drift. I don't know if this is the best word of it, but our connection with Jesus starts to shift when we are habitually sinning. And that double life of keeping that part, like Judas had this thieving part, uh, quiet, secret, it puts a wedge into our relationship with Jesus. Or our connection loses, uh, loosens with busyness. We just haven't kept up our regular habits of prayer and fellowship and reading God's word, and it's hard to hear Jesus' voice when we aren't, we, we aren't listening for it, when we're not making space for him. Uh, our desire for power, I think this is a problem in the American church, our desire for power may get in the way of our faith. Uh, we want more victory in our lives. That's me. We want more power in our lives. That is me. We want to see God at work in obvious ways, and it's fantastic when we get to see that. But what about when God is working behind the scenes, hidden? He's bringing to fruition his amazing plan of salvation, but we don't get to see it. We won't see it until the end. And closely aligned with that, I think, is that the demands of the kingdom of heaven go so much against our grain. It's unnatural to us. It's alien to our way of thinking. It's hard for us to give up our power, give up our privilege, give up our control. It's hard for us to turn the other cheek, to not sin in our anger, to leave vengeance for God. It's hard for us to love unconditionally. It's hard for us to choose humility. Judas did a terrible thing. And we would love to look down on him, except that we share some of his traits. 
Judas wasn't the only betrayer of Jesus that night. All the disciples ran away when he was arrested. That night, Peter vehemently denied that he knew Jesus. Three times. Cursing. He blew three chances to own up to Jesus. Jesus' followers didn't stand with him. They didn't defend him in the moment against armed soldiers. It's not as bad as Judas, of course, but it's a betrayal nonetheless. Now, why was Peter forgiven and not Judas? Judas was repentant, the Bible says. But Judas cut himself off from forgiveness. Peter returned to his community of fellow disciples. And this is actually what the church is best at, being a group of forgiven and forgiving people. We've been on both sides of that equation. And Peter returned to find that grace. Judas gives us a lot to think about. He was a follower of Jesus who in the end turned against Jesus as strongly as he had followed him with his everything. And he regretted that he regretted that decision, but he didn't seem to know Jesus enough to come back to him, or maybe he was just stubborn about it. He didn't come back to his community for forgiveness. And as we follow Jesus, we will encounter many outside influence, many inside personality traits, many circumstances that will challenge our faith, and we will encounter followers who stopped following. So I just want to proclaim today that Jesus is good in ways that we will not discover except in the future. In the future, we, we will know how fully awesome he is. We have not yet experienced his deeper love in its fullness. We have just skimmed the surface of his love right now. So think about the grace that is awaiting you. I went to a 90th birthday yesterday of my Uncle Herbie. And so we called for a speech. Speech, we said. And the first words he said were, Jesus Christ. And then he started crying. Jesus Christ is my friend, he said. Jesus is my savior. I love him, he said. This is a 90-year-old who may meet Jesus in person, I'm saying within the next 10, 20 years, I'm saying. And Jesus is precious to him. He is in a, an assisted living place. So he's in a room. He goes about in a wheelchair. He has people to help him get up, people to to go out into the dining room to eat dinner with. It, it isn't his, a home of his own making. And he's the first thing in his speech, Jesus Christ, it's been so good to me, he said. We don't understand Jesus. We won't be able to put him into a confinement of our own making. We will be challenged to the utmost in following him but Jesus is worth it. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Know that Jesus is worth it.
Let's bow our heads. Draw us close to yourself, Jesus. Because on our own, we could just wander. We could wander away from you. So draw us close to yourself. And we do pray that you would show yourself to us. Show yourself to us. And we pray that we would step by step find you faithful into our future as we have into the past. We pray that our time with you would be precious and that you would speak to us and commune with us and communicate with us, Lord Jesus, as we set aside time with you. And thank you that you are here. You are here with us now. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.